Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's been more than five years since DOD started the acquisition to overhaul its military moving system. Now the Pentagon says it's finally just a few weeks away from seeing the first moves under the Global Household Goods Contract. DOD plans to use the contract for up to $18 billion worth of work over the next decade. And yet, the Pentagon faces some big questions about who will actually do that work. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu joins me with the latest. And Jared, what you're reporting is that the prime contractor is ready to go. All of the integration issues are done between it and the government and so forth. But the subs are not showing up to say, here I am. Well, they may be, but we don't know who they are as part of the issue here right now. Going back to where you started, yeah, that the main hang-up lately has been... IT integration problems between the systems operated by HomeSafe, DOD's new prime contractor for operating the entire military moving system, and U.S. Transportation Command. Getting into this new global household goods contract really required the development of two systems, one on the contractor side that's going to be used by individual military members to help manage their moves and all the individual moving companies that are involved as subcontractors, and then also a new system on the DOD side to order those moves to manage the entire process on the government side. So getting both of those up and running and playing nicely together is apparently the, the, the latest holdup here. They did some another round of IT integration testing in January. That apparently went well enough that they feel like they can move forward. And yes, over the next several weeks, uh, we should start seeing some of those test moves happening, according to DOD. Very small scale so far. They're just going to be local moves, like within a local community, essentially, so they can, you know, work the bugs out of this system, see what works, see what doesn't, before they even contemplate doing any kind of long-distance moves. And under the contract, who is it that actually selects the particular sub that's going to do a given move? Is it the prime contractor, and the Pentagon just has reports and oversight? Yeah, that, that's basically right. The idea behind this global household goods contract concept is that there is a single move manager that handles the entire process soup to nuts, and DOD's only interaction with the moving industry is through that contractor, HomeSafe in this case, uh, it is the uh, ultimate winner of, of that award. The selection process as to who uh, actually handles the on-the-ground work is then up to HomeSafe. HomeSafe, of course, does not operate any of its own trucks. It does not have any drivers of its own, so it's entirely reliant on uh, subcontractors in the moving industry uh, to handle all the actual work. And these are expected to be companies like the standard names, Allied Van Lines or Mayflower, that type of... That is exactly what was the expectation. However, all of those companies, as far as we can tell, have, have declined to opt into this contract, uh, as far as we know. I, I've talked to really the major players that make up most of DOD's existing capacity. All of them say that they are not participating because they say the rates are so low that they would lose money on this endeavor. And none of them know who has actually signed up with HomeSafe. Interestingly, HomeSafe is also declining to tell us who its subcontractor uh, partners are. They say that's because um, there's been essentially intimidation, they allege, on the part of the traditional moving companies so that uh, the, the companies who are actually participating in the contract are afraid to publicly identify themselves. Very strange situation. I've never seen anything quite like that, where somebody doing a, a large portion of government work wants to remain anonymous. That's strange. I wonder if there's some sort of a mob connection where there's territories that 
<laughs> are protected by different companies, and these would cross those lines. It, it's it's really not like that. The, the moving industry is relatively small and close-knit, but it is also very competitive. There's many, many, many different subcontractors involved in the moving industry right now, you know, hundreds of them. But, but all of the work really runs through fewer than a dozen companies, mostly family-owned companies that act as agents and they each have their own networks. As the system works right now, they get uh, that, that work assigned directly by DOD. So, yeah, definitely no mob connections or anything like that that I'm aware of. But as I said, it is a, it is a relatively um, small industry where everybody kind of knows each other. Sure. So then when DOD rolls out these tests, we don't know who it's going to be that's going to do the work. But what's their plan for the initial rollout and then the scaling up over time? They say that they are going to make it completely conditions-based, is what U.S. Transportation Command told us earlier this week. They're going to see what happens with these test moves. And as I said, it's going to be very small scales to, st- to start with. They say in GHC, the Global Household Goods Contract, that's going to make up probably fewer than 1% of all the moves that DOD does during this upcoming summer uh, peak moving season. Then they'll start to ramp up later this year if all goes well, starting in the September timeframe. And then ideally, all of the domestic moves happening by the peak season in 2025. But as you said at the opening, we're we're pretty far into this contract by now. DOD was expected to start really ramping up this contract over a year ago. So there there have been delays, partly because of bid protests, but partly because of these latest IT integration challenges. All right. But getting back to the price question and the fact that the people that have the capacity to carry out moves on a DOD scale don't want to participate – what are they saying about that? Because that seems like a pretty intractable issue. It is a very intractable issue, and there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to, to change the terms at this point because the prices that HomeSafe is able to pay out to these individual subcontractors are somewhat constrained by what they're getting from the government. And those prices were largely set back in the 2019 timeframe when when all of the bidders who were vying for this contract put in their individual price proposals to DOD. There has been some upward adjustment to that that is allowable under the terms of the contract, but it is still very constrained. So even if HomeSafe wanted to increase the rates that it's um, that it's paying to these individual subcontractors, there's only so much that it can do. The rates that it's getting from DOD are currently, I'm told, lower than what moving companies are getting directly from DOD right now. Some of the folks who've seen the rate sheets that HomeSafe is offering say that they would be making anywhere between 20 and 25% less than they were back in 2019. So, so price really is going to be a a big issue here. And and this probably only works if the industry changes in some way, at least under these terms. And I think that's a lot of what HomeSafe and its parent company, KBR, are hoping for here. They they say that the reason they think this is going to work is they're, as they say, not constrained by DUD's existing uh, partnerships with moving companies. And they're going to, quote unquote, disrupt the industry, is what KBR's CEO told us earlier this week. As far as we can tell, is this contract free of some of the constraints that are affecting other areas of federal contracting? For example, the notion that the drivers and the truck operators would have to be a certain level of green or have electric trucks or have certain labor payment standards, which could also make people run away from it. 
Yes, there is a very big one, and it is the Service Contract Act, which we're familiar with, which applies to really all service contracts in the government. And that is a new feature as far as the moving industry is concerned. It's not something that they have ever had to deal with briefly, as as a lot of our listeners know. It really just requires that employees working under a government service contract be paid fair labor wages based on a locality area that, that are set by the Department of Labor. But that's an entirely new concept for the moving industry because it does not, by and large, run on hourly wages. They're uh, up, up until now have been exempt from that sort of thing. Uh, you know, a moving company is paid a tariff based on what it has published, and then that that money kind of flows down on a per shipment and you know per tonnage basis to individual drivers, to individual packers. The whole concept of hourly wages is really foreign to this industry, and they say implementing something like that. For only their DOD moves and not the rest of their commercial moves is, is is just something that they do not know how to manage. Wow, sounds like an intractable issue. But for the meantime, they are promising they're going to start the small-scale moves soon. Yes, we should see. Transcom says in the next few weeks they're going to publicly announce the locations where those test moves will take place. That's going to have to be done, uh, obviously, in consultation with the military services because they're the ones that actually order individual service members from place to place. But they do want to start out small. They want to start out local to see how everything goes. So it could be one end of Fort Bragg to the other. It could, or off base at Fort Bragg onto Fort Bragg or vice versa. That's probably exactly the kind of thing we're looking at in these early stages. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams 
to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes and that they are opportunities to learn and so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing. 
to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys 
having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.